Civic Radio. Welcome to Civic Radio. Today we spoke to architect, designer, inventor, Alistair Parvin. So I, I trained in architecture, uh, and in some ways I suppose still am working within the domain of architecture, but um, increasingly found we all found ourselves stepping outside traditionally what the limit of architecture was. It's hard to absolutely capture what a citizen is. What's really easy to capture is the opposite, so the idea of an uncitizen. So for years, if you literally look at the language people were adopting, they were you know, using words like customers or clients. And we've seen that quite interestingly when we've seen the privatisation of public services, how you know, suddenly uh, users of public um, institutions became referred to as customers. So um, you're not just a customer. Equally, I think we, we have to be cautious about buying into this idea that everyone's going to move from being a consumer to being a producer. No, you know, and there's plenty of words around this idea of a, a prosumer or a consumer. I think there's definitely something in that idea of um, it's not just about rights and responsibilities. It's actually about your capabilities um, and, and b being able to participate in production. I think if we, if I can talk on very broad terms, you know, we've fallen into the habit of using the word democracy to mean a form of government, effectively. Um, and we think, oh yeah, we live in a democratic country. Whereas actually, if you reapproach the word democracy as a designer, you realise that democracy is a diagram. I mean, it lit I mean, in the literal sense, demos, people, kratos, power. And that power can be any kind of power. It can be electrical power. So almost, there's this, almost this strange tension where we're waking up and finding that although we all believe passionately in this idea of democracy, democracy is much more than having a vote every few years. Because actually we were using that to sustain these incredibly undemocratic industrial systems. So incredibly centralised. Um, and so the, the opportunity is to say, well, hold on a minute, if we see democracy as a design diagram, not just as a, as a kind of set of voting rights and, a, uh, and other sort of civil rights, um, actually we can begin to realise that it's not a black and white condition. It's a continuous process of saying, actually, um, can we afford more capability and power realistically to the greatest number of people? And that speaks across our institutions, but it also speaks across markets. You know, if you look at our financial systems, our energy markets, you know, we've all, what's happening across almost all of them is this move from incredibly undemocratic, centralised models and, and centralised institutions, where occasionally maybe you might get to have your say, to... Um, much more distributed, decentralised models. And that's a very interesting form of democracy in terms of how do we build, how would we build an industrial society around that idea? How do we build a civic framework around that? So on the face of it, WikiHouse is a building system and its purpose is to make it much, much simpler for small businesses, citizens and communities to effectively download and locally print, digitally manufacture, a kind of unique kit house that they can then assemble very, very simply. And it's a very, very sustainable home. So it's putting the power to design and produce 
um, very sustainable homes and neighbourhoods into the hands of the people who are actually going to live there. That's the explicit the, the, the thing you see on, on when you first come to it, and it looks like a kind of... Uh, people have called it the kind of Lego for the real world, or kind of massive IKEA kit, basically. Um, so it's taking a level of customization to you, a level of energy performance uh, that previously you've had to pay through the nose to get to. It's prohibitively expensive, and saying no, actually, this is completely can be completely affordable to people on most incomes in in the UK. Um, but behind it, in a way behind that system is a kind of industrial revolution in the same way that um, you know, the spinning jenny and the, 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 the printing press inferred a kind of quite fundamental change in the way that things were made. Um, we think these technologies are, are the bellwether of a quite fundamental industrial revolution in the way we make homes, which is this shift from the 19th, 20th century idea that homes have to be made by a small number of huge companies building rows and rows of mass housing, and then you just get a mortgage and move in, to a point where we can seriously start talking about um, citizens as a serious force for co-designing, co-producing, and curing their own homes, their own neighbourhoods. And that won't come quickly, but it's a really fundamental change in our mindset, the idea that we could make it completely normal idea that you could um, have the right to buy a plot of land and perhaps get together with a bunch of other people and build a house. And of course, what you're building is not just a house. What a developer would see is just a house you are seeing as the platform where you're going to live. Um, so you're completely changing the set of values or the economic transformation. This is economic transformation in the system of how we develop. I guess the thing about this is that it builds on itself. So the more you do it, the more it improves and the more options there are and the stronger it becomes. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, the idea that a house is something you can finish is absurd. Um, and actually, that's the same with the building system. And actually, the thing about uh, WikiHouse is that people say, oh, God, it's incredibly new or innovative. And we say, well, actually, it's how most houses throughout most of history developed. Um, they developed through these vernacular types that were honed by builders and craftsmen and designers, taking it, improving it slightly, working out what didn't work, and making the next version. It's just that they did it over hundreds of years. Now we have the capacity to do that over thousands of miles in a very short period of time um, but the power of that is huge and I think it might well be that we look back on this kind of industrial era of top-down development done to citizens instead of done by them as this kind of adolescent blip in our development cycle I hope so I think one of the nice things about WikiHouse is that it's not anyone's idea there were a lot of people already thinking like this and already working like this. And it just um, provided, it just kind of hit that moment where it became a common platform for people who were thinking in this way. So sometimes, yes, it's, for example, architects who were completely fed up with the limitations of, if you like, the, the industry that they were being funneled into um, that was kind of marked out, this path that was marked out for them. They said, no, thank you. Um, equally, there's a lot of people from a kind of technology side who have habitually been working in an open source way anyway for the last 10 or more years. Um, they know it's more effective. 
Um, and so the, when the opportunity comes to start extending that into the world of physical things, they say, of course, of course we should be doing that. So I think that's one of the things I most like about uh, the Wikihouse project is you can speak to anyone and they'll give you, ask anyone that question and they'll give you a different answer. Design is not sort of the part of the creative industries, this subset of our economy. Actually, right now, design is a way of thinking that is fundamentally redesigning our economy. And actually, it probably always was. We just weren't talking about it like that. All the design industries, and architecture especially, are, are suddenly waking up. And they're suddenly realising that they've been, for the last few decades, they've been sort of sleepwalking along in this, this myth that was created for them. Um, and certainly in architecture, it was this idea of the post-60s utopian architect, but actually it was a very 80s idea of the designer in a roll-neck jumper, sort of this lone genius producing these grand visions. And actually, what no one was sitting up and noticing and saying, well, who are we working for? What are we doing? And you know, one of the start points for me was I sort of just did the calculation. I always think if you don't really, if you if you're a designer and you don't know what you're doing and you really want to think about it, a good place to start is start with the economics, follow the money. And I, so I did. I was like, okay, you know, if my annual salary supposedly as an architecture graduate is something like twenty-four thousand pounds, then the thing I know is that that comes from somewhere. And when you followed it, you realised that a Architecture was pretty much entirely working for this very, very narrow group, you know, around the 1% of, of wealthy people. And most of the time, we were working within the speculative housing industry. Now, that wasn't because architects were bad or because we were stupid. It was because we hadn't stopped and asked what we were really doing. And so one of my first things I did as a student was I wrote... Um, a kind of dissertation, I suppose you call it, called the profit function. And basically what I was looking into there was that just as everybody else sort of began to wake up and go, oh, hold on a minute, you know, they almost they complain, why is architecture so commercial? And I said, well, actually, this is fascinating because it means the whole industry is actually um, for something else. And actually it turns out when I look, and I looked specifically at this issue of housing, and you look at this issue of housing... And it turns out that almost everything we currently call bad design, we're baffled at why it is that we can't deliver good housing in this country. And actually, almost everything that we call bad design is actually good design, but for a totally different set of economic outcomes when you start looking into the economics of it. And so having first then established, well, why is this incredibly broad, important, connected up way of thinking called design why is it only selling its services to this incredibly narrow set of questions which is basically how do you make a, a property developer a little bit richer um, then this the question comes which okay what would happen if we started opening out this conversation what could the other markets for earning a living as a designer be the interesting thing about it is that the system's that we have are unravelling almost at the same time as we're realising there's another way of doing things. I mean, I don't need to talk about the housing crisis in the UK. And it's, we used to think of housing crisis as a thing that's happening in the developing world, and we now realise it's not. You know, we're supposedly one of the wealthiest countries in the world, and we have this, you know, stupendous failure of housing. This massive inflation of housing is 5,000%, I think, since like, around 1971. Um, and, but also in terms of the fundamental quality of our homes, the sustainability of them. Um, so you, you have to step, take a step back and ask, well, who actually builds our homes? This question of purpose. Well, who is building our homes and why? There's actually some really straightforward stuff behind it, which is 
Almost every government in the world right now, for example, has a policy to reduce the energy performance of buildings. But there's only one group of people who have a direct economic incentive to put more insulation in the walls or whatever. And that's the people who are going to live there and pay the heating bills. And yet they're the one group of people we've never seen, we've never put in charge of housing. So th there's this open secret, which is so obvious that we almost stop noticing it, which is that housing and development generally has been seen as something done to, not done by citizens. We've, we've got completely locked into this 19th century industrial age idea that um, in order to build housing, we need these f tiny number of huge organizations, whether it's the market or the state, to buy up whole tranches of land and then develop these rows and rows of one-size-fits-all housing um, on our behalf, which, of course, we then can't afford. Um, and it's probably not sustainable and it doesn't work. And the amazing thing about this model is that um, it's, it's still the norm. We're still hanging on to it almost as, as the norm. And yet there's almost no examples from any point in human history of this ever succeeding in producing a culturally and economically and socially successful neighbourhood. You can look back across from Priscilla to, um, you know, to some of to some of the, the new smart cities happening now. You know, there's cities like Kalamba Kiaxi being built in Angola using Chinese financial capital. They're these kind of non-places. And um, that's an extraordinary tension. The, 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 this age in which uh, development, housing development was done to citizens, not done by citizens. Uh, and we were just these compliant, not even consumers actually, borrowers at the end of the process suddenly is beginning to unravel. It's suddenly becoming possible or necessary to realise that there's this other big missing sector out there called the citizen sector. The problem is that even as governments realise that actually they need this citizen sector, the same question comes back from almost everyone we've spoken to, which is actually, we, you know, even housing developers, Councils, national government, everyone will say, yeah, we like the idea, but it's too damn difficult. Now, that's interesting, because too damn difficult is a design problem. So the challenge that we face is, do we have the opportunity now um, to, check, to address this problem of too damn difficult, to make the idea of bottom-up citizen-led planning and development of our homes and our cities something that we can take seriously as a scalable force? Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the reasons why this is difficult. Mm. Do you think citizens are like have the the way of of thinking and approaching this to be able to contribute to this as a design process? I think people always see imagine the change on the terms of the present. And actually I think there's that great Caesar area quote which is about all changes are changing the topic. <laughs> um, it's it's not this kind of, yeah, faster horses. You know, if you're, you can have any colour you want as long as it's black. It's not about giving people infinite choice to do whatever you want, because, of course, you know, that's, but that's not what it's about. In fact, the truth is that from a, a, a purely economic point of view, um, the process of developing your home, people don't really get that you don't actually have to do any of the building yourself. So we tend to get hung up on ideas about self-build and custom build, because that's what we've seen in the past. But even if we were to live in an economy where... Um, land was made available. You had a right to buy a plot of land and then pay a, a company to build a house for you, customised for you. Instantly, the transformation would be huge. 
Now, the OFT straight away think that it probably saves you about a third of the money. So I mean, even though you've not got your hands dirty at all, and perhaps you've just paid an architect to design it for you, so you didn't do any of the work for yourself. I like this idea that... Um like kind of getting people to emotionally invest in where they live is happening, like potentially that's happening a bit, which I maybe has a value in making people mm. take their process of living more seriously. I think the main, the main thing is that <laughs> it's the difference between, as John Turner said, the difference between seeing housing as a noun, as a collection of objects, and seeing housing as a verb, which is a process of continually giving you the best place to bring up your children, to work and have a job, or to you know turn your hobby into a business or whatever it might be, and to pay the heating bills and all those things, is that fundamentally, until you put those, those basic forms of value in charge of the procurement process, now they don't have to be in charge of the design process. They don't have to be in charge of the building process. In fact, it's good. And so the strange thing is that actually out there, there's a whole economy of, of small businesses and designers who are really good and actually would love to be working for people to kind of help them solve these problems and help them think about these problems, actually to help you design the place where you want to, to live and to grow up. But they don't have the, the opportunity to do so. All those designers are only working for this very narrow group of speculative real estate developers. So you do not have to be this, um, you know, you don't have to do everything yourself. Um, it's actually about fundamentally changing, the, flipping our economy the other way up. So it's actually about the different kinds of value that, that lead it. And certainly in housing, we've become very much locked into a kind of this 20th century dichotomy, which is market or state. You know, do you, you're a consumer, but do you want to consume from the market or do you want to consume from the state? And the fundamental the kind of realisation is that those animals are not actually that different in this case because they're both centralised, you know, housing models. People in, who work in existing, if you, if you like, top-down institutions and organisations tend to get incredibly worried and tie themselves in knots um, about this and about how... They, they, they feel they can't empower the bottom up because everything they touch, you know, it's the opposite of a Midas touch. And the, a good example of that is consultation, right, where we, we fundamentally reacted to this incredibly undemocratic development model in our housing and cities by introducing this thing called community consultation, and everyone who's been involved knows that it means nothing, um, that actually, you know... It, it doesn't change the underlying economics of what takes place and it's, it's equivalent to sort of asking the local community what colour brick would you like to be smacked around the head with. So you know that. Does the local community know that? I think people do instinctively know that. I mean, from the experience that I've been to, I mean, people are actually incredibly eloquent um, at saying things that simply the professionals don't know how to respond to because they say, well, that's not an option. You know, actually the local community say, well... Why are you making five stories higher than it should be and blocking out all the sunlight, for example? And I've got, by the way, I've got a lot of sympathy for NIMBYs, generally, because actually what we're doing with NIMBYs is we're asking NIMBYs to bear all the costs of development but get none of the gains. So even if they wouldn't articulate it as such, um, actually communities are instinctively quite articulate about the fact that they are being asked to bear all the costs of development but getting none of the good stuff and they're, they're being fundamentally disempowered by the whole process. Um, the good news is, and I think we can take a lot of lessons from 
the web, fundamentally. Um, the good news is you don't have to tie yourself in knots. Actually, uh, the kind of uh, the open source approach is that you just try one thing and you put it out there and you just don't restrict it. So you allow it. And then at that point you go, okay, this starts getting pretty interesting because you can start to observe where the, th the barriers are. So actually, if you take a project like WikiHouse, what is it under the bonnet? It's an exercise in finding barriers and slowly designing them down and saying, okay, how can we lower the thresholds of time and cost and skill and money and capital, et cetera, that keep all these things in place? And that is a way of addressing the too damn difficult problem. Um, I think fundamentally, if we want to cause systemic change, sitting here and sort of arguing people, this is the Buckminster Fuller point, right? Don't fight against existing systems. Um, you know, make a new model that makes them obsolete. And the fundamental obvious way of doing that is instead of sitting here going, hey, there's this much more civic, sustainable, sociable path out there, but I'm afraid it costs more and it's more difficult. Say, no, how can we engineer these systems so actually they're easier, simpler, cheaper, and they will simply become the new normal? And that, for me, is the essence of, you know, that's what should get us out of bed in the morning, you know, that um, all the great revolutions, actually, I think, might have been industrial revolutions. And we should think very hard about the questions that we're asking these technologies to make sure that that's the case. And <clears throat> so we're obviously in, in a process, like a revolution is a process, but do you feel it's a done deal and that is happening? And can you imagine, are you, do you feel you know what the future we're walking into is? Um, I, a really good person to uh, kind of at least read the first half of is um, Jeremy Rifkin on this. Um, he has a really good diagnosis for what seems to be happening, which is what he calls the zero marginal cost uh, society. So the cost of producing things is falling and falling and falling. So effectively, simple way of putting it is everything is getting Napsterized. The, the massive disruptions that we saw uh, in the, the video, you know, in web, in journalism over the last 10 years, all that's happening is they're now coming to the physical economy. Um, but it's by no means a done deal because actually that can play out in two different ways. Because if you think about it, the whole of the politics of the 20th century were all based around who owns the means of production. And we have whole institutions, whole political parties still plugging away at that question. And the reason why they feel a little bit weird and out of touch is because who owns the means of production is increasingly not the problem. Capital doesn't just go away, it moves. So it moves on to the next thing it can own. And increasingly, um, we know where capital is moving next. It's moving to hard assets like land and materials. And it's also moving to soft assets, things like IP and personal data. So those things become the new domains that we need a new civic framework around. And we need to decide who owns them, who owns the future. So it's extremely possible that we could move into this fantastic, abundant economy in the next 10, 20 years where everybody can get energy or print their own house or whatever it is. And actually, your costs will be you know, near zero. But by the way, you won't be able to get a job and the whole thing will be owned by about two companies in Silicon Valley. Do we think that's, do we think that's success or do we think that's failure? So on one level, I think it's a reasonably good bet that we know where technolo te the technology is taking us. But to quote, you know, my favourite Cedric Price quote, technology is the answer, but what was the question? 
actually we have to look really hard at the civic frameworks behind the core commodities behind these shifts and actually we could be moving into two very different futures and that's why with a project like WikiHouse, as strange as it may seem to be talking about this stuff in relation to say, you know, this kind of Lego system for houses, actually it's really important to ask who owns these technologies and we think a good start is to say we all own these technologies, they belong to everybody. Who do you think is doing interesting work in civic tech and I'm using maybe we need to define civic tech before we yeah. do that. A good place to start with that question is not necessarily the civic question it's the tech question so at the moment we're inheriting this kind of what I call second-hand Silicon Valley idea of tech which treats tech as a commodity and actually these technologies if what we're talking about is even half right and this is some kind of new industrial revolution. These technologies are not just commodities. They are whole new civic and economic frameworks. And so there's this problem, because the only way to build them and grow them is, uh, at the moment, this tech economy based on venture capital where someone treats it as a, as, a, as a commodity. And that's a real problem, because actually some things should be commodities. I think uh, the historian Tony Judd said, you should never privatise the rail network but um, you should never nationalise the sandwiches on the trains. Um, because in the network, if you privatise the rail network, you know there's no real competition. Whereas actually, with the sandwiches, uh, competition is the only way that you know the sandwich isn't going to kill you. So I think we've, we've, we've lost sight of, if you like, the frame, that framing around technology. So although there are lots of, for me, fascinating social enterprises, to, you know, in... in inverted commas, um, doing very, very interesting things technologically. For me, the most interesting ones right now are the ones who are taking a step back and asking these questions about ownership. Um, and that's really hard to do because they're instantly saying, hey, no, actually, we can't come and get swept up by a venture capitalist investor overnight. Um, I think a really good example uh, of, of someone thinking really hard about this is the Ethereum team right now. Um, the reason for that is if we do say, okay, we need to be talking about the civic frameworks behind these technologies, one option is actually we need to create new civic institutions to own them. And there's, a, there's an element of that. So with WikiHouse, for example, we've created WikiHouse Foundation, very much in the Wikimedia Foundation model, which is a non neutral non-profit, which is at the company at the core, because we're saying actually you know, yes, the cars should be made by many companies, but the roads and the white lines on the roads should be owned by everybody. And, and actually, the foundation is a kind of, it's a, it's a civic shared vehicle to do that. But actually, something like the Ethereum project is going one step further because they're looking at technologies like blockchain, um, which is what uh, uh, Bitcoin runs off, um, and saying, no, hold on a minute, actually we can fundamentally engineer and architecture these things so that there doesn't need to be a centralised ownership of anything. Um, and that's very, very interesting that we see this shift in the, the civic discourse from not just the new kinds of civic institution, but almost new ways of doing, uh, uh, of providing goods and services that don't even require centralised institutions. Um, and some, I can't remember his name, but someone raised a very interesting example of this recently, um, where he proposed that in the future these self-driving cars could actually own themselves. 
And that's a really interesting, challenging idea because it's getting to this, to the real shift of this kind of forthcoming singularity. So um, any, com- yeah, to answer your question, um, the companies that are the most interesting ones are the ones who are really thinking hard about the fact that the technology that they are creating is not just a commodity, it's actually a whole new civic and economic framework and it matters who owns it or who doesn't own it. Have you got a d- definition of a civic space? The best definition actually is one that is owned by everybody in some sense. Um, now obviously that's often through an intermediary and that we forget that that's why the state was created, right, as this kind of centralised agent to act on everybody but unfortunately because we didn't have computers or the web it often became disconnected and corrupted in, it, you know, in, it, in its purpose. And I don't mean corrupted in the brown envelope sense though of course sometimes governments do. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited by as recently I'm sure you've seen the, you know, the V&A and uh, they've written uh, all this belongs to you over the door of the V&A which is a wonderful reminder, a restatement actually these are the values that we built a lot of this industrial infrastructure on in the first place. The best definition probably for the civic realm is space that's owned by everybody. Certainly if not owned by everybody, um, space over which everyone has common rights. Now if you look back into the history of the commons you know, the commons, the open field farming system, it's actually really, really fascinating. You had these incredibly interesting dynamics about um, uh, what rights of tillage or pasture or whatever, you know, people had over this land, how you mitigated the various elements um, sort of around this. So, for example, you had strip farming systems where every year the strips were allocated by lottery um, so that no one got to monopolise the good bits of of you know the land and things like that so and i think in a way we've we've sort of lost that a little bit because when we talk about commons in cities everyone means oh parks and stuff like that and it's own it's run by the council and saying well no it's not necessarily um and actually because we allowed that to happen we allowed ourselves to think that a public space was a kind of hard thing with benches and some trees and therefore, you could have this thing where the private sector created public space, but it's not really public space because you can't, you don't have rights of use, you don't have rights of access, and fundamentally, it's the private sector who gets to decide what happens there. So it's very much public space in the private interest, and of course, that's a well-known, you know, debate as to the issue with that. Now that is going to enter a whole new domain now with drones and um, kind of surveillance technologies, etc. But I think the more interesting space, in a way, is. Um, the com- realizing that the commons are not just there as a social good, and they are, like this idea of the, you know, uh, Jimmy Wales calls Wikipedia the cathedral of the mind, they are also there as fundamental economic f- frameworks. You know, I think of the white lines on the road. How much well, white lines on the road were actually a relatively recent historic invention. I think the first white lines were in around 1911. Um, and uh, how much sort of maintenance and management of the road system do you require but for the, without them but for the cost of only some white paint you essentially create this system whereby everybody can participate on even terms now that we in a way for me is a richer definition of the commons although it doesn't traditionally fit with the kind of progressive viewpoint that actually is a metaphor for the commons roads and the white lines on the roads are a really productive way to think about commons they're not just there um, as these cathedrals, as valuable and important as those things are, fundamentally they are the platforms that al- allow us, that allow the city to function, and they create points of access. And so we, one of the projects we were involved with a couple of years ago, was proposing in East London, 
he had this moment where everyone was talking about uh, entrepreneurs and young, you know, how a kind of 14-year-old kid could turn their idea into a business. So, well, they couldn't because actually the rents are completely killing people. So if you're really smart, what you do is you create commons, you know, points, spaces and opportunities, places that people can access at low or no cost and they can get access to those things without you owning them. So I think... Um, even within the physical domain of commons in cities, if we think more in the white lines on the roadway and not just in the parks way, we will begin to invent whole new types of commons. And it's funny in a way that it's taken new digital commons emerging like Creative Commons licenses and Wikipedia um, to remind us of that. There's an awful lot of people who are so locked into this new labour approach, what I call the burger and salad approach to housing, where you know, New Labour's whole idea, yeah, which you can think of through the metaphor of the burger and the salad, is uh, that effectively we'll let the market do it and then we'll tax off the back of the market a few things like a, some affordable housing and a, a, a health centre. The problem with this is that, firstly, it makes no sense because by the time you've eaten the burger, no amount of salad can undo it. It's a bit like... To, mix my metaphors it's a bit like asking a highwayman to rob you of everything you own providing they cut you into a bit like it just doesn't make any sense so over time of course because it wasn't addressing the systemic failure of this really centralized housing production model it just meant that housing was becoming more and more unaffordable and the term affordable housing just means less and less and less so this idea of this, and that really that goes to the heart of New Labour's whole political economy, this idea of the burger and the salad, this distributing a little tax back. And there's two reasons why it's bad. One, because it just doesn't work. Um, and two, because uh, it's actually a corruption. And so you can go into a planning committee meeting and lots of people who've been in them will tell you this story in different words, um, where they say... Uh, well, we realise that this proposed scheme uh, doesn't meet the planning guidelines in any number of ways, but um, it's provided, the developer has provided enough sufficient Section 106 mitigations, i.e. a bit of cash on the side for a, uh, for a school, that we're going to pass it anyway. So effectively it's a way of saying we've corrupted the public good against the public good. And so there's an awful lot of people within... Uh, local authorities and things who are so used to that that's not what where their heart is but they're so used to it because that's just how we've done things for the last 20 years and it's really hard because as that system collapses away we're left with no way of providing serious affordable sustainable housing that people can actually afford so none of the political parties have a solution to this problem what you see what we've seen is um, kind of you know, some people trying to cling to this boat as it sinks. On the other side, you see other people saying, well, let's get rid of all that silliness, all your kind of Section 106 environmental obligations. But of course, all that just means is you just end up with bad housing or no housing. So um, there's this fundamental gap. And I think, yeah, it's very hard for people to see that um, there is nothing, there are none of the existing parts of our housing system that can solve the problem. You know, they will always be there. You know, the housing developers will always be there. The housing associations are actually brilliant, by the way. Housing associations are really, really interesting because they think of housing as a verb, not as a noun. Um, 
But fundamentally, we need a new system. We need this new sector. So the other thing I'm arguing for is this idea of a, a citizen sector. How can we scale and how big can we make this citizen sector? And it can address these fundamental underlying issues like land and nimbyism. Because actually people are much more likely, and there's some really good polling evidence that shows this, they're much more likely to support development if they know it's going to be sustainable, if it's going to be uh, supported by infrastructure, and it's going to benefit them or their families or you know, their friends. Um, so actually, the art, it annoys me when I see people, um, it annoys me when I hear people uh, say, or sort of tacitly advocate, oh, why can't we be more like China to solve some of these big environmental problems? We'll just force that thing called democracy into the back seat for a little while. I'm like, no. Actually, the solution is more democracy, not less democracy. And it's to recognise that, you know, market failure cannot be addressed by a few, you know, bit of compensation payments. Civic Radio. Civic Radio is part of the Civic Shop, which has recently moved from Somerset House to a new space at the V&A. We're online permanently at www.civicworkshop.city, where you can find the other interviews in this series. And they're also on the Tech for Good TV feed on iTunes. <laughs>